Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at Cambridge University. I'm Suzanne Rain and this is part of our series on resistance, radicalisation and religion where we look at division and extremism in different parts of the world and at different times in history. We're doing something a little bit different this week by zooming in on the experience of a small group of people who were part of the resistance in occupied Belgium during the Second World War. I'm delighted to be joined by Gordon Carrera, the BBC's security correspondent and author of numerous books, the most recent of which is Russians Among Us, Sleeper Cells and the Hunt for Putin's Agents. But the book we'll be talking about today is Secret Pigeon Service, Operation Columba, Resistance and the Struggle to Liberate Europe. Hello, Gordon. Hello, Suzanne. Gordon, we're going to talk about a really unusual resistance operation to reach out to people in occupied Europe. And you came across this in a rather roundabout way. So could you start by explaining to us all how this came to your attention? It was a bit of a roundabout way. Uh, There'd been a story in the news which I'd covered which was about um, a, um, a, a pigeon's leg, a dead pigeon's leg being found in a chimney with a message attached to it from the Second World War. And this was quite a few years ago. And uh, people couldn't decode the message. And it even went to GCHQ and they couldn't decode the message. So it was a mystery. And I kind of reported it and it got a lot of interest. But it also made me think, well, this is slightly strange. I didn't realise they used pigeons in the Second World War to send messages. So I thought, well, I'll, I slightly ambitiously thought, well, I might be able to decode this message, which GCHQ didn't do. I'm going to kind of go on the trail of this. And I thought, I'll go into the National Archives at Kew and I'll see what they've got on these pigeons of World War II. Started leafing through the files, most of them pretty odd or dull, you know, how much how much money was being assigned for pigeon feed to various lofts for the RAF at one point in the war. And then one file just, it it kind of landed on my desk and it immediately stood out to me. It was a war office file. It was stamped secret and it had a picture or a cartoon of a pigeon on the front with Hitler splayed underneath as if the pigeon had done its business on Hitler. And I, I looked at this and I thought, I mean, you don't normally get any pictures on on the front of these kind of rather dull-looking files in the National Archives. I remember thinking to myself, what on earth is this? You know, a secret operation, a secret file, which had only been declassified a few few years earlier, where someone had put a pigeon on the cover and Hitler. And I opened it up, and inside what I found were basically riches because there were these these messages, these um, pink slips, and I started flicking through them and realised that they were messages from occupied Europe, from people um, living in France, Belgium, other countries, which had been sent back by pigeon. And and this was Operation Columba. And so I started to kind of try and piece together what it was and realise that not much had ever been written or, or looked into it. So that, Gordon, and I think this is where it gets really interesting, because, of course, the work that you did next was tracking who had sent the messages and 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 piecing together their story and that focuses in particular about on a, a group of people who were in Belgium um and this is early in the war so so very soon after the um the Germans overran Belgium and France and and obviously the British retreat back to to the British Isles so can you tell me a little bit more about um, the message that you found that really sort of grabbed your interest? Yeah, I mean, so so I first of all, I tried to work out how Operation Columba worked. And basically, they used the, the secret power that these pigeons have, which is that you can drop them 
uh, a long way from home, somewhere they've never been before, and and someone could attach a message to them. And then um, when they're released, they just fly home. They fly home to their home loft in Britain. And so they worked out after a bit of a kind of battle in, in, early in the war with, within the bureaucracy that what you could do is you could put, put these pigeons in canisters, give them to RAF flights, which were doing kind of special operations drops of, of agents, push the pigeons out still in their canisters. The canister floats to the ground with a parachute attached. There's a message saying, if you find this, please um, send us back information about German troop movements, positions, food supplies, anything that's useful, basically intelligence. And people could make the decision whether or not to scrawl something on a bit of paper, which was included in a pencil, and then attach it to a to a canister, put a canister on the pigeon's leg, and then release the pigeon and it flies home. And this was basically how Operation Columba worked. And it was a kind of slightly crazy operation. But you realize that at this point in the war, early on, there was uh, Europe was a kind of black hole for intelligence. Um, there were very few networks of agents which were still there. There was the kind of the breaking of enigma, the kind of uh, cracking of codes hadn't really got going yet in any substantive way. So, so people didn't know what was going on in occupied Europe. And this was a way of, of reaching them, of reaching actually ordinary people. And it was a bit of an experiment. And when they started it, I think they didn't know if it would work or not and whether people would respond or not. But soon, within a few weeks of those first pigeons being dropped, they start to get messages back. And some of them are pretty, pretty um, simple. And some of them are are almost quite sad. I mean, they they say things like, you know, "We're, we're living under terrible conditions. I haven't got any intelligence to pass you, but please come and save us. Um, or, you know, my, my son has died um, um, fighting the Germans. He cared for pigeons, so I want, I want to care for this one and send it back. And, but not necessarily huge intelligence. But then, crucially, um, when I was leafing through this file, there was one message which was different to all the others, because all the others were on kind of pink slips and had been written out. But there was one where in the file that I found, they'd actually kept the original or a copy of the original message, a kind of photo stat of it. And it was amazing because it was it was it was maps and it was detailed maps and just I mean uh, unthinkable to, that that this had been squeezed onto something the size of, of a postage stamp uh, and yet the information from this one message message thirty seven had led to a kind of a fourteen page intelligence report because there's just detail in the most tiny writing all over it about German troop movements, about the position of German defences, um, about recent RAF bombing at, uh, at attacks and, and what damage they'd done. Uh, just amazing intelligence. And, and it was also clear from this message um, that it had a powerful impact, not just on the Columba team running this operation in a bizarre bit of a British intelligence called MI14 subsection D, which uh, I'd never heard of before. But uh, this message, it said in the files, had actually been shown to Churchill. And I found that amazing. I mean, wasn't so much necessarily about the specific details of the intelligence, but what it, the reason it was so powerful, I think they wanted to show it to Churchill, was that he'd believed that there were people in Europe who wanted to resist and who were capable of helping Britain uh, if, if they could be reached, if they could be contacted. And this message showed that there were people willing to take the risks of sending message back, messages back, but also who were capable of providing real serious intelligence and so this was a 
uh, you know, that really difficult time when the fear was that actually the, 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 the Nazis would be invading the UK, uh, that actually there were people in occupied Europe who, who were there. But what I found even more fascinating was that actually that there, there, there was no name attached to who'd sent this message. There was just a code name, Leopold Vindictive, um, but not the names of those behind it, but just some kind of fragmentary references. So I then spent a long time trying to work out who Leopold Vindictive were. And eventually, by cross-referencing it with Belgian um, archives and sources, I realised that it was a small, tiny group of people who'd in Belgium who'd taken a decision that they wanted to resist, led by um, a Catholic priest called uh, Joseph Raskin. And I then set on the trail of trying to find out more about him and was fortunate enough to get in touch with his niece, who'd also spent a lot of time trying to piece together the, the life of her uncle, but had known nothing about this message, or, or at least not seen that it existed in the British archives and didn't know that side of the story. So together, we were able to really go on this trail and, and uncover the work of just this tiny resistance network led by this Catholic priest. So Gordon, that, it's such a brilliant scene setter. And one of the things that's just lovely about that is the the sort of haphazard nature of the whole thing, dropping pigeons in the dark in fields in 1940 and hoping someone will find it. And I think um, the statistics for the pigeons were, were pretty brutal. The chances of being found alive by somebody who was going to care for the pigeon and wanted to send it back were quite small, I think. So, so many yeah. pigeons didn't make it at that stage, let's be honest with our listeners. But then you've brought, brought really clearly that, that sort of, that lovely bit about Churchill realising that it meant that there were people there who were prepared to res- resist. And, and also then it just makes us think, well, that's the choice that you, if you found the pigeon, what would you do? You know, would you hand it over to the Nazis who might have seen it land, who might have been watching um, to see who collected it and what they were going to do? Or would you take the chance to do something potentially in a very long way. I mean, there's so much kind of hope involved, isn't there, in, in, in putting a message on the pigeon and, and setting it setting it into the air again and hoping that it goes back to the UK and hoping that somebody will somehow come and, and liberate France and Belgium. So, so that's the kind of the scene of it all. Um, and then, as you described, so this, this one pigeon landed in a field in Belgium and was found by a Belgian farmer, I think. So, so, so introduce us to the characters um, around Leopold Vindictive. Yeah, you're right. Lots of the pigeons didn't make it back. Lots of people, unfortunately, you know, were starving and ate the pigeons. They ate the evidence. Um, uh, others handed into the Germans. There were rewards to hand in a pigeon and risk otherwise. But this one pigeon lands in a field and the farmer finds it. He reads the message, realises it's a resistance pigeon. And I suppose it... it it, it's fortunate for that pigeon. It lands in this kind of community of people in a, in a town which was actually quite um, um, divided between those who were pro and anti-Nazi. Um, but the farmer gives it to a family which he knows is, if you like, um, uh, um, resistance. They're patriots, as they're known. Um, and one of the families, a pigeon fancier, they have a bit of a debate about what to do it, but they know to call their friend, who is this Catholic priest, Joseph Raskin. And he, and, and so uh, around it, they, they, they make the decision. And it is a decision to, to risk their lives. 
by using this pigeon to send back information. And they, they go on the hunt for information they can find. They kind of span out, uh, span out as a group to, to see um, what information they can find. They find a, 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 um, um, a chateau, which is being used as a base for, for, for German, the German Navy, um, and, and, and detail where the communications trails are. They ask friends, um, they ask a kind of network, and this figure, Joseph Raskan, is, is, is at the heart of it and is the leader of it, and he is the one we know writes the message, and he is particularly fascinating. I, I kind of think he was someone who was waiting for the opportunity to resist, and the pigeon was the opportunity, and it looks like he might have even been collecting information beforehand. I mean, just to paint a picture of him, he came from a very cultured um, family in Belgium, he had in the he joined the Shirtists, which is a kind of um, a, a Catholic order, um, headquartered in Anderlecht, uh, I think, and had in the First World War actually because he was a, a, a priest, been a, a stretcher bearer, but then had ended up at the front sketching maps and and, and pictures of the front because he was a great artist. And they realised these actually had intelligence value, so he'd almost become a kind of uh, an observer, an intelligence gatherer in the First World War. Um, had been captured and then escaped. Then he goes to China after the war. He's a missionary in China. Uh, he learns calligraphy, which comes in useful when he's writing the tiny message um, um, uh, to send back via the pigeon, and then comes back to Belgium, where he's used as a what they call a propagandist for, for, for the order, which basically meant going around the countryside and around the country, um, talking about his life as a missionary, trying to encourage people to support the the, the group and, um, and building up a network of contacts, fundraising. And the advantage that gives him is that he knows a lot of people and he travels around the country. And he has, if you like, a ready-made network of people who are, um, uh, who are, who are loyal to him and who are patriots and who in many cases don't, don't like the Nazis. And so if you like, he, he's got a ready-made intelligence network and he has the motivation as a deep patriot to want to do something about it. And then this pigeon appears. <laughs> and if you like, it just gives him this opportunity somehow, I mean, literally from above, <laughs> an opportunity to do the thing that he really feels passionate about doing, which is resistance. Uh, and so he sets about it with a fervor. And, and you know, that, that leads to this um, amazing message, you know, packed full of information. It looks like it comes from many different sources, which he's collated and brought together and then sat and written using a magnifying glass and then attached this pigeon to get back to London, which has this, you know, huge impact on British intelligence and, and leads actually to a kind of a realization that actually he's got more to do and he wants to keep going. And they in London are desperate to get hold of him as well to send in more intelligence. And Gordon, in your book, you've got a photograph of Joseph Raskin where you can just see it coming off the page. It's an incredibly kind of charismatic figure, even in the photograph, in the black and white photograph, with a twinkle in his eye and a, a sort of little goatee beard, um, which I think was taken while he was learning in China. And and the question, you're probably not going to be answered, able to answer this question, but that overlap between you know, his strong Catholic identity and faith and his very strong patriotism is, becomes very interesting when he decides to be part of the resistance. And the question, I suppose, we've been looking at, at this overlap between resistance and, and the role of religious faith in, in motivating people or in 
in giving people a sense that they have a higher purpose. You know, what role do you think it played in, in sort of Raskin's mind or indeed in those, those people who, who he managed to collect around him? I think it was absolutely central. Um, I think it was, uh, I mean, his faith was clearly defined him to a huge extent and, and drove him. But I also think it is at this time fused, interestingly, with a kind of a royalism. So he's actually, he, he's he's a, a chaplain, plays a brief role. It's kind of quite interesting at the start of the war where he's he's quite close to some elements of the royal family. He actually acts as a, a chaplain to the to the Belgian king right at the start as the invasion is happening. And he um, 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 meets him in, 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 and, and, and carries out mass with him. And so it's fused with a kind of a patriotism, um, a royalism and his faith. And a also I think it, it makes him slightly unshakable in his in his in his determination and willing to sacrifice himself and to take huge risks and um i think it, it, it it's almost um it's almost impossible to kind of pull out where the faith and the resistance you know pull them apart because they're just so intertwined i think in his character and in who he was and what drove him to do what he felt was right. I don't, you, you get a sense of a man with very little doubt, very little doubt about his faith, very little doubt about his duty to resist. And the charisma that you mentioned is certainly there, and that drew many other people around him. And I can also imagine that it, it provided a degree of trust um, for this small resistance network, because you had the bonds of faith there and friendship, which went with them, and loyalty. And those were vital um, when the Nazis were trying to penetrate resistance groups and trying to work against them. And I think also offered a kind of strength to this small group, Leopold Vindictive, and that it was drawn together by that faith. Can I ask that? You talked about very little doubt. Do you think there was fear and courage? Or, I mean, obviously there would have been fear, but... To what extent do you think he was afraid or do you think he just didn't, he was so certain about his course of action that he didn't have time for fear? I, I, I uh, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, some of those around him, so he works with one particular family, the Debailly family, and they're the ones who were given the, the pigeon originally. And there you, you see, for instance, it's um, three brothers and two sisters, um, all again, kind of very, very strong in their Catholic faith. But there are differences within the family. Some are, are more keen to to engage in resistance than others. But when they decide as a family they're going to do it, they they do it, <laughs> and and they they're, they're kind of united as a family. But Raskin him, Raskin himself, uh, you just don't sense you you just sense this 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 drive and this desire because he is then desperate to get more information back to Britain. He he's had this success and he knows the message has got back because a message comes on the BBC and the BBC broadcasts these messages, um, which which basically acknowledge the pigeon. And they say, you know, Leopold Vindictive, you know, the, 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 the exact words I can't, I can't remember, but, you know, the, the key is in the, the, the lock and, you know, waiting to turn. It's a kind of code phrase, but basically means we've got your we've got your pigeon. We've got the message and we want more. And so um, uh, he knows it's worked. And, and you just get the sense then that he's desperate to do more. And he, you know, he and, and the others go out and they are gathering huge amounts more of intelligence. They're, they're, they're looking for ways of getting the messages back. 
the pigeons that Britain tries to drop the pigeons and they don't reach the target. Um, so it's a problem. And he then starts to engage with other resistance groups to try and get um, to find a radio set to send messages back and ask for more pigeons, taking more and more risks as he does that, because he's moving beyond that tight group of, of Leopold Vindictive and engaging with other wider resistance circles. Uh, yet he keeps going, he keeps going, he keeps going. And, and you, 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 you don't sense that, that, that there's doubt there. You just sense an absolute determination that this is his duty to resist. So, Gordon, I want to ask two questions now, because clearly at this point, the British pigeon operation let him down because we didn't get the pigeons back. But I also want to ask you about the Belgian king, because that decision that we... So I think we'll come back to the pigeon operation and just talk about the king for a minute. That decision mm. that we're talking about, about whether to... Essentially, whether to resist or not... Uh, whether to just hope for a quiet life, whether to um, settle down under German occupation or whether to take huge physical risks was an acute one for the, for the king of Belgium, who, who Joseph Raskin, as you say, seems to have been in some way close to, because the king had to decide when the Germans invaded whether to leave Belgium, head to the UK and run a government in exile or run a country in exile, in a way, or whether to stay with his people. And I know that that he felt a great amount of, or it's been reported, that he felt a, a great amount of personal anguish about that decision and felt that he could not leave his people. But he was haunted then by that decision for the rest of his life by those who said that he essentially stayed under German occupation. So, uh, Yeah, I think... Uh, uh, uh... I think in hindsight, you can see that it was a mistake for his reputation for the king to have to have stayed. But also at the time, I think his feeling was, you know, as the Germans invaded, is it going to is it is it going to be seen as if I'm running if I leave? Um, and am I better off staying with my people? Um, and he took that decision partly based on what the, you know happened with his family in, in the First World War. And I, uh, but then the result is he's he's under a kind of is it house arrest? I'm not sure because he's in a palace, <laughs> um, so it's not really palace arrest. Um, but you know, it, it 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 turns it allows people to say he's basically collaborating, which he, he wasn't necessarily, but he was there, kind of living um, and not uncomfortably under Nazi occupation, um, and um, it became very controversial. And and there were kind of particular questions about the actions of some of his family, and so uh, it did much to undermine the position I think of the royal family in Belgium, um, his decision to stay. Whereas those who were in who moved to exile often were able to kind of become beacons, if you like, of kind of freedom and resistance. Whereas he became, if you like, an image more of quiet um, um, acquiescence, if not kind of collaboration, but. Uh, and I think that was that was damaging. It, it's it's easier to see in hindsight. I think that it was a mistake than perhaps it, it was at the time. But one of the one of the ways it relates back to this story is, is that the British were genuinely unsure what the king's views were about the Nazis, and so they were quite keen to look and see if there was a way of getting in touch with him, and of of, of opening up an intelligence channel with him. And they thought Raskin might be one way of doing that because they were aware he'd, he'd had this contact and been a chaplain to the king. So actually, as the pigeons d 
don't make it to Raskin. They um, MI6 kind of take over the operation as they are sometimes want to do, and they um, they they parachute in two agents to try and contact Raskin, and, and partly to get the intelligence from Leopold Vindictive, but also to kind of see if they can they can establish a link into the royal family to understand what's going on there. And that, and there's a part of me that thinks that that sort of absolute determination that that you talk about with Raskin, I can't help but wonder that in his conversations with the king, he was sufficiently encouraging about the prospects that the king thought, well, this is, I've got to stay. Um, you know, if Raskin thinks so, I better stay. But we'll never know that. So, Gordon, I mean, the story, like a lot of stories in the Second World War, doesn't have a happy ending um, at all. And I think the 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 sort of the effort that Raskin went to to try and communicate with the British was um, unfortunately disappointed because they just couldn't get the pigeons back again. How did it unravel? It unraveled partly because of that problem getting hold of the the pigeons, uh, and it leads Raskin, who's desperate to to get in touch with 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 British intelligence, increasingly to reach out to existing resistance networks in Belgium. And they were, they, these were growing at the time. They were trying to do things like get airmen who'd crashed um, out back to Britain, RAF airmen and others, and send, up, send back intelligence. But the problem was that these networks were often leaky. They were penetrated by German intelligence. And um, the result is he becomes involved in one particular network, which he's hoping will... will, will get him out but in fact is 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 being monitored and so as part of a kind of sweep um and a, a sweep of arrests and, and they've used agents and infiltrators they're able to um arrest this network and in a way to, to almost to the surprise of the germans they find they've got leopold vindictive and um uh, the person behind this what has become quite a famous message and, and a famous group within this small world um, and they've captured him. And he is then, um, along with some of the other members of Leopold Vindictive, they are eventually transported to Germany. And uh, I mean, it is, you know, the worst possible end, actually, for them, because they are um, executed um, by the Germans. But even from the kind of tiny messages we have from, that, that are kind of smuggled out and um, the, the eyewitness testimony, you know, his faith does sustain him there and he's carrying out mass in the... Uh, um, still in the prison camps, and you know you don't. E- even though ultimately, it, you know it, it, it. He pays a terrible price for it. Uh, you know I don't sense from what I can see that he regretted what he'd done, or that he'd have done things differently. In that, in, in at least overall his decision to resist. And you know, and he's one example of of so many, of course. And we've not gone into all the details. Um, that we could have about about the different messages and the the, the different attempts to, to get in touch with him in different ways, Gordon. So, so just to bring it back to the the sort of present day, because I think one of the things, one of the other things that was striking about your book is that when you started making the connections in Belgium, you found that the families were very conscious of the history and had kept a lot of artifacts from that yeah. time which 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 nobody even knew existed no and 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 that i found very moving actually when when uh, when i met raskin's niece and then she took me to see the the debai family and you know it was one of those amazing moments where they opened up a kind of storage box and there were pictures you know and there were pictures of the family and there were you know kind of tiny treasures that they kept 
um, and that as a family had been passed on from generations about this act of resistance. And the same with the, another family of Hector Joie and they, his family, again, his children um, and, and, and grandchildren had passed on these stories and, you know, felt very deeply about the importance of preserving the memory of those people who'd, who'd made that choice. And yes, they paid a terrible price, but I think the, the families are still incredibly proud of what they what had been done by, by by these people and by this small group, Leopold Vindictive. And, you know, it, I, I found that very moving and I found it very, you know, it was it, it felt it felt important to be able to pay tribute to these people like that who's, who'd taken decisions in World War Two and you know, uh, many of the, many of the, many, there are so many stories of resistance in World War Two, and we've heard about some of the big, you know, and the big SOE operations. But often it's just these people who took tiny choices, you know, and uh, you know the, the choice to shelter someone in your house, uh, you know, a crashed airman, and or the choice to send a pigeon back, or the choice to help someone gather a bit of intelligence, or to say something, and. And these could be incredibly costly, but together they mattered. I mean, together the intelligence brought back by these pigeons did did make a difference. I mean, of course, it didn't win the war, but it, you know, in some cases, it saved lives. It helped, um, you know, um, D Day and other operations. And to me, it was also what was powerful was that sense of connection it gave. You know, at this time of when you know people in Britain felt isolated and could just see this kind of occupation of Europe, and these people in occupied Europe were feeling the weight of occupation and tyranny, to know that there were other people out there who wanted to resist and to be to find that way of being in touch with each other. I think that that sense of contact and communication and encouragement was almost as powerful as the specific bits of intelligence which could be passed back in some of these operations. I agree completely, Gordon, and thank you so much for telling us this story in an abridged version. Anyone who wants more information, please buy Gordon's book. Um, but that point you make, Gordon, about the family and and the the, conti- the the spirit of resistance and the continuity of the spirit of resistance is a really important one for us to understand. And and of course, it it feels human nature. It feels obvious, but it helps us to understand the geopolitics of today because that is human nature and you are proud of your brave grandfather or 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 uncle um and and the fact that you've got families in belgium who who keep the precious objects from the resistance i think is is something we should all be very mindful of about how much standing up to something really terrible means to people um so Thank you, Gordon. It's been a real treat and um, very grateful for your time. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for listening to this podcast for the Centre for Geopolitics. If you'd like to learn more about the Centre, please visit our website on cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.
from Cambridge Geopolitics Conversations. You can find the Centre for Geopolitics on Twitter at @camgeopolitics, and all our events are advertised online on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.